Hi, it's P. Price, and this is P. Price Extra. But today, it's The Lost Tapes. I think one of the greatest comics ever was Bob Monkhouse. He had a book called Crying With Laughter, and it changed his life. He was always Mr. Smarmy. People thought he was never off television. They didn't know there was another side to him. But when the book came out, Crying With Laughter, he'd actually done interviews, and people went, wow. This man is a comic. This man does know his craft. This man has got another side to him. He had a lot of tragedy in his life with his sons. Um, He had tragedy with his wife. And did you know that his family were monks' custard powder? Yep. He came from quite a family. This is Bob Monkhouse. It's Lost Tapes, and the book was called Crying With Laughter. The last time I interviewed this gentleman was at another radio station, and I was a new novice, and uh, I, as you can tell, I've done really well for myself because I'm now at another radio station in the same town. But you have moved on. Bob Monkhouse, you brought your life story out, an autobiography, Crying With Laughter. Thank you for coming in. It's always a delight to see you anyway, but it's nice to be in this glamorous studio and to see the gypsy in your soul has brought you from one station to the other. And I'll follow you wherever you go to the ends of the earth, Peter. Thank you very much. First of all, can you please analyse comedy? Because you are a professor of comedy. I mean, can you analyse comedy? Comedy, Max Miller once told me, is the one thing you can do really badly and people won't laugh at you. And it takes about a minute for that one to sink in, by the way. It's one of those, you know, some of these are comedy bombs. They pull the grenade, you lob it into the audience, you wait five seconds, boom, while they get it. That was a comedy a grenade I just threw you then. Um, Arthur Kirstler in The Act of Creation, a favourite book of mine, regular bedtime reading, defined a joke by saying it's parallel lines in which someone has tied a knot. I don't think you'll get better than that. Comedy is something we need in our lives so badly. And comedy is something that people have been trying to write. I mean, Chaucer must have walked up and down. Is this going to be funny? Will this make them laugh? Shakespeare, not good at comedy, you must admit, not great. But uh, unless, of course, people fall down or you like seeing their throats slit. And that makes you laugh. But generally speaking, he's trying to do comedy all the time. Halfway, half of his stuff is comedy. And the comedy actors, the clowns that go way back, Commedia dell'arte and all the famous clowns of the biblical times that told stories in the marketplace and tried to make you laugh with acrobatics. We've always needed to laugh. Have you any idea why comedy started? I mean, have you any idea and have you ever gone that far back that why, why, we, why we need to laugh? It started, I think, in the Garden of Eden when Adam first saw Eve and said, stand back, I don't know how big this thing is going to get. <laughs> so as far as I was the very first joke... <laughs> And we've always needed it. It's, it's, it's social intercourse. And stop your eyes lighting up. I said social. It is something to do with pouring the warm oil of humour upon all human relationships. Otherwise, if, most people who haven't got a sense of humour feel most obliged to let you know that they have. I've got a very good sense of humour. <laughs> and they haven't. You know when people are having fun together, you hear laughter. You know that, that humour is being exchanged at whatever level. They require it at that moment in business. Not Actually, there's a very touching little piece in a wonderful thriller, by, as all these thrillers are great, by Ted Albury. This one was called The Girl from Addis Ababa. And it was about a, a nomadic tribe in Ethiopia, very beautiful people, all about six foot tall. And this gorgeous girl who is swept up, she's completely um, uh, naive because she's only ever lived in, in the desert and in the jungles. And she's brought into Western civilization, where she's a sensational model because she is so beautiful and so tall and sensational. She falls in love with the hero. That doesn't matter. But she writes back to the tri- before she returns eventually to the tribe. She writes back to them in whatever script they use 
to communicate in writing, and says how sad the British are. She said, I'm here in Britain, and it is very grey, and it is very wet, and these poor people have to hire other people to make them laugh. <laughs> how awful. She had to engage professional people to make them laugh instead of making one another laugh. It went through me like a sword, because it, you realise that natural comedy exists without stand-up comics. <laughs> Are we necessary, Peter? Well, I've travelled the world, um, not professionally, but uh, with my holidays, etc., and worked in several places. I found that Belgian people do not laugh. Is there a particular place that you have been to that people don't laugh? I don't mean particularly <laughs> the <clock>. Shakespeare, Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely the Wookiee Hollow at Bill Swan. <laughs> oh, dear. I find the further south... Well, let's limit ourselves rather than go abroad on this one uh, because the gulf between American comedy and British comedy is so large we could talk about that the whole... would take up all our time. Or Australian comedy or Canadian comedy or South African comedy or, or wherever you want to say and then in America, you go state by state, it changes. But in this country, I find that the change takes place around about Watford, around about where I live in South Bedfordshire. Um, people laugh less as you get down through London and towards the South Coast. And the toughest audience, not only the toughest audience, but those with the least comedy perception, the least comedy reach, seem to be deposited all along the South Coast. And the warmth seems to occur as you spread outwards from Birmingham towards the northeast and towards the northwest. And, of course, the centre of all comedians, of all comedy, has to be Liverpool because there's the historical evidence of it, from Rob Wilton and Arthur Askey through to Jimmy Tarbutton, Ken Dodd, and the younger bunch, uh, and Tommy Handley. I mean, the list, we know, is, is endless. Let's talk about the book. Bob Monkhausen crying with laughter. Why now? Why, why was the time right to bring the book out? Probably isn't. I didn't actually want to write the book at all, Pete. I didn't want to write my life story because there's so many people involved in it. I didn't want to hurt. And I knew I'd have to pussyfoot around them. I didn't want to, that exercise at all. I wanted to be very honest. If I was going to speak the truth, I thought I want to be able to do it unfettered. But my agent did a clever thing, I guess, because he thought, oh, well, 1993 is going to be a strange year for Bob. He's going to get his bus pass on June the 1st. He's going to be 65. He's going to get his free false teeth and his plastic leg. And, uh, indeed, I got a bus pass from you, you naughty man. And I love it. It's in my, my little folder now, my wallet. And he's going to do various things and uh, on, in his 65th year, other than retire. He knew there was a whisper out that I would get uh, some an honour, and I didn't. So he said it would be nice if you told your story at 65. It seems the right time to do it. I said, Peter, I don't really want to do it. And he then very subtly gave me a gift of several biographies. Biography lends to death a new horror. As soon as you're dead, some fella comes along and gets your story all wrong. I read one on Benny Hill, I read one on Eric Morecambe, I read one on Peter Sellers, that was dreadful. I read one on uh, Frankie Howard and another. Um, uh, 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 there's so much, we've lost so many great comedians recently. Um, and reading them and becoming more and more... Because I, I knew these guys, and I knew the inaccuracies. And I hated it. So I thought, OK, I've got to do it as a preemptive strike, if you like, against a possible biographer, because non-entities and very much smaller celebrities get written about for some reason and I thought I just might be in the line of fire. I better get the, the truth down before my memory goes and so I did. The criteria that I chose were I've got to be honest where I don't hurt anybody 
I can't give away any secrets that aren't mine to to give away. Uh, I will tell the truth to the reader as well as I can, allowing for faulty memory, allowing for subjective views on things. I will make a list of people who've impinged upon my life in such a way that they've changed it, but I will only use the story if the story is more about me than it is about them. And finally, I won't uh, tell any tale that will actually cause grief to someone living today. Uh, I'll protect them from that. So having set those rules for myself, telling the absolute truth, I thought would be much more difficult. It wasn't that difficult. What was difficult was for the first time in my life, not writing jokes, the funny parts were easy to write, was writing what I I really felt in my heart, getting my feelings pinned down on paper. Sometimes I got uh, very emotional and I had to get up and take a walk around the houses, pull myself together, and I usually found when I got back my thoughts had organised themselves and the empty blank, blank piece of paper was a welcoming site that I could arrange my thoughts on. And sometimes I've written things in the book, which even now when I read them astonish me, because I didn't know that I could say that. Um, particularly about... Um, I didn't want to write about my first wife, because my children, and in particular my second son and my first wife, have suffered from a rashness on my part, a recklessness when I've given interviews. I've mentioned them and have mentioned details. They've been very hurt. They didn't ask for, for celebrity or the spotlight. They don't want that. They're private people. So I thought, OK, I'll leave them. I'll just set down the bare facts about them and no more. My son, my first son, I wanted to write about because he meant so much to me. And I wanted to share him with other parents of uh, disabled children and with other people who have cerebral palsy who would read the book to let them know my feelings about him and the way I understood that situation. And perhaps we'll come back to that. But I also wanted to write about Abigail, to include her because I love her so very much and she's my adopted daughter and I felt deserved more special attention to reassure her. And most of all, I wanted to write the book as a tribute to the happiness I've had in life over the last 25 years with Jackie, my wife. I'm going to pry a little bit into the book and I'm certainly going to keep your privacy very private because I know you're a private man, but I, I must mention Gary. I've always known you as somebody who has totally shied away from uh, publicity with Gary, and yet you mentioned him in in the book. Was this a, a thing that you pulled against yourself, or did you have to...? You know, the reason I always shied against it, Pete, I never wanted anyone to think that I was talking about having a disabled son in order to say, well, you might not think I'm funny, but you've got to like me because you ought to feel sorry for me. Um and that's the reason initially I didn't join the Spastic Society, although I'm, I was I found a member of SOS, the Stars Organization for People with Cerebral Palsy. I never was active in it for, throughout Gary's early years because, again, I didn't want to be seen to be trying to seek some kind of advantage for him, either educationally or wherever he'd be um, housed when he wasn't with me. That was my reason for being so assiduous in not drawing attention to the fact that I had a son who was handicapped with cerebral palsy. And then I realised that I could help other people who had children similarly affected if I shared my experiences and some of the fun with them. And then as Gary became more and more affirmative in his life as an adult, as his spirit carried him from day to day with more energy and more personality than half a dozen people put together that I could name... I became so proud of him 
that I wanted one day to celebrate him, and I, but I didn't until I didn't write about him until about a month. I think it was in the August of 1992, and he had been dead for about a month, and the circumstances of his death were so unexpected and so unpleasant that I didn't want to write about those. It's specifically, I didn't think the reader would want to know that kind of detail. But I wanted to tell what a marvellous man he'd been and how he had made each day so important and how he had never, he'd been unable to dissemble. He never lied. He couldn't. He actually couldn't lie, Pete. You know, if you played, a, if I played a joke on you, you'd gone out of the room and, and left... Uh, uh, your watch somewhere, and I'd go, I would say to Gary, let's hide it, and he'd laugh because his sense of humour was like a, a boy's, and we'd hide it under something, and and you'd come back in the room knowing very well that I'd hidden it, and you'd uh, pretend to be worried about it, and you'd look where it was, and you'd scratch your head, and Gary would be laughing, and then you'd be looking around to see where it was. He'd tap you with his foot and show you where it was. He couldn't bear the deception to go on. When you did This Is Your Life, which I think is well, in my opinion, is the ultimate in uh, compliment to any artist or any person, because I think it's great. But I uh, never think they get it right, but I do think it's a great compliment. Um, I don't know if you agree with me over this. Well, answer me that first. I don't know. Um, This is a laugh. It's such a curious thing. If somebody said, tonight, we are going to show you a half-hour documentary about the life of Peter Price or Bob Mancas or Jim Bowen or whoever it is, you probably wouldn't bother tuning in. And yet this extraordinary device of not letting you know who it is, you're going to see someone surprised and you almost guarantee that they'll try and keep uh, someone back to the very end who they can bring on and reduce the, the subject to tears. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary invention that you've... Thus, you're prepared to sit there and watch these people come out and do these voices. <laughs> really, what are, you, what are you doing other than just telling their story rather badly? Uh, but it works. Yeah. It, it plays as a television drama. So I'm, I have no more criticism of that than I have a Family Fortunes or any game show, any kind of formula on TV that works. Well, let me ask you the question I was going to ask you. Did your heart sink wondering what was going to happen about Gary coming on, or what, what, I mean, what... After the revelation, and they can't afford to do revelations like the one they did on me, if you remember, they actually built the Celebrity Square's frame in the heart of London, up at St Martin's Lane, in the car park at Thorn EMI, and built, I mean, it cost us £80,000 in 1975 to build the thing, and they filled it with uh, celebrities, there were about three or four in every box, which we couldn't afford to do on the programme, um, and had a giant uh, curtain that came down to reveal it, it was, uh, the, the, the reveal, as they call it, in the This Is Your Life offices, used to be a very, very big feature of the show. Now it can't be done. I mean, it's much too costly. The accountants won't let them do that. As soon as they did that, and they take you to the place where they're going to do it with the audience, which in this case was the one down Kingsway, uh, the Prince Charles Theatre, um, that you've got an hour and a half to pull yourself together, to put some cl- decent clothes on, to have the makeup girl make sure that you haven't got a pimple on the end of your snout or whatever they need to do. During that time, my my other son came to me at the behest of the producer, and the producer came to me, who was a friend I knew from previous productions, and said, look, Gary is here, but the decision is yours. Either we bring him on in his wheelchair, um, or we don't, because we have pre-filmed, pre-taped, um, at the Keir Park Centre where Gary was then resident in Worcestershire, a little sequence of him writing... Uh, happy birthday, Dad, and I'll see you da, 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 on a light writer that he worked with his big toe. And I said, 
I, this is show business we're in now. This is not a documentary. That, that audience is sitting out there waiting to see stars or whatever come on. They wait and have a laugh, wait and have a tear. If you wheel my son on there, strapped in a chair with his wrists strapped down and gloves, and he may well burst into tears if he becomes over-emotional, and, he, and when he did, he wailed. He wailed. And it most distressing sound. And if he became angry or thought it was wrong, he would start stomping with his bare foot on, until he... And it would be terrible. And, and I'm not going to do that to the audience, and I'm not going to do that to him. So I said, I really don't... My son is not a sideshow. I won't have him wheeled on the stage. Subsequently, his mother was very cross that I had made that decision. So was my other son. They said that I had um, I'd made a mistake, but I don't think I did. In the book, um, you use an expression, turning honest. <laughs> Comics go honest. Explain <laughs> that to me. <laughs> well, Pete, when you walk on stage, if you're an actor, of course, you have a role to play. You're not playing yourself. And if they say you stank, they're criticising your ability to act or your interpretation of the role that you went on to portray. They're not criticising you. The audience isn't booing you. They're booing what you're doing. For the stand-up comedian, his commitment to what he offers the audience varies. I think to begin with, some performers, I was one of them, confect a persona, invent something that they think the audience will like. It's close to what they really are. It should be themselves made large. But quite frequently, it is a puppet. And I know of many comedians, among them, for example, Benny Hill, who used to stand mentally in the wings, operating the figure, the puppet on stage that was supposed to be him. But it wasn't. It was an artificial version of him. He was not the Joker. He was the Joker's messenger who stood there in, in the spotlight and couldn't be hurt if we didn't like him. That's why I think so many young comedians, when they begin, carry a ventriloquist dummy, a set of magic tricks, a ukulele, a, a guitar, anything that says, I'm only here to play this, I'm here for this reason. If you don't laugh at me, it doesn't matter because I've got another reason to be here. I'm comparing the show. I had to come out to introduce the next act. It's nothing to do with me getting laughs or not. That's, in that way, they remain... They give themselves a self-defence until such time as they can come to terms with the fact that they are able to do their job properly. For me, it took me until I was 40 to be willing to be vulnerable in front of an audience with total honesty, to actually say, this is me, and this is what I think, and this is what I feel, and this is what I believe, and this is all coming from me. This is where I'm coming from, and this is you've got to understand and enter this world with me or reject me. But if you reject me, it's going to be tough on both of us because it'll be a short act, <laughs> which might be a good thing that night, but it, I will dry my tears quite happily if you... I will not dry tears of anguish if things don't go well. I've got used to trying to entertain it. I called that turning honest because I was really coming to terms with my own emotions, which I had kept suppressed for the first half of my life. And I think that was my training in the genteel fug of Beckenham, where my mother taught me to apply the same standards of self-control that she herself operated, which were to suppress all signs of emotion. Don't laugh out loud in public. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, I, 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 as you know, I absolutely worship my mother, and I know you loved your mother, but you didn't have that love and affection that you were. De well, you were deprived of the love and affection, as you say, from the early part of your life, and you were you were trained. Would you have turned out a different person 
if she'd had given you love, if she'd have hugged you and, and kissed you and, and been there for you that way? I suppose so. That would have... Yes, I, that's a very difficult one because it's so hypothetical. But I imagine had there been an investment of of love, there had there been cuddles and had there been laughter and had there been... Uh, oh, I don't know if I've been born to that kind of family that really is prepared to let itself go and shout out, and like in bread, <laughs> if I'd been born to bread, I'd be... Maybe I'd be quiet now. Maybe I wouldn't be looking for approval and attention, uh, the kind that I've sought all my life, and maybe that wouldn't have driven me into the profession that I'm in or into that particular side of it that I occupy, looking for laughter. I, I guess it might have done... I, on the other hand, Woody Allen put it best... He said, two babies lying on a bed, and one of them's going to grow up to be Jerry Lewis, and the other one isn't. It's in the genes. There's no way that you can make the one who isn't going to grow up to be Jerry Lewis funny. Or not funny on a stage. And I wanted funny from my earliest conscious moments. I, can, I think I remember most clearly being three or three and a half, and going to... What I later found out was the splendid cinema Sydenham, South London, uh, when our maid, in those days one had maids, she later claimed to be my governess. How pompous we get. But my mother wanted a maid, kippers and curtains. So I think she paid her, she joined us when she was 14 years of age for £15 a year, all found. And then she's a lovely woman, Edith. She took me to see George Formby in Boots Boots, and from that moment... I didn't want to do anything else but comedy, and I just didn't grow out of that. And I always, whenever, wherever I heard laughter, that's where I went. Did you? Do you think you would have turned out different if you hadn't come from money? Well, so many comedians seem to come from from penury. Uh, it's the haves and have-nots that creates a certain amount of laughter, and so many comedians have come from the have-nots, from poverty or from deprived situations of some kind. Um, from the ghettos, and if you listen to the ethnic background of the great Jewish or the great black comedians, they use that. In fact, you wonder what on earth the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant comedian can talk about, since he has nothing to object to about his treatment. But I don't think it ever crossed my mind that we were either well-off or not well-off. As a child, I don't think it occurs to you when you're little. You don't worry about money very much. You worry about your pocket money. That's the only money that crosses your mind. And then as you grow up, I suppose you're looking to make your own. I don't think my, my father being well off ever actually played a part in my thinking. Reading the book, and as you know, I'm not a great reader, but I, I couldn't put it down, whether it's because I know you or not, is another thing, but you know that you're my hero anyway as a comic. Um, you did a one-man play, which I didn't know about, and you won an award. Would we ever see anything like that again? It may have already been on, I'm not sure now, um, but it's, it's called All or Nothing at All with Hugh Laurie. Uh, it's a miniseries, a three three part miniseries, and some other scripts have been sent round to Peter Pritchard, our agent at one time. He's still mine, and you, you fired him, but I kept I kept him on. And um, <laughs> the, 
platinum body quite like that. <laughs> Neither would he. Um, he. So he's got a few dramatic scripts for me to look at, and I do hope there'll be more drama opportunities. But that particular one, which is called The Flip Side, it was written as a radio play in, in Canada. A guy's alone, a very lonely radio station. He's holding the fort alone, playing records, and every time he puts a record on, he gets on the phone, his wife's leaving him, and he's begging her not to go. And, and through his end of the conversation, you gathered the whole background of the marriage, and you gathered that he was a real creep. But it came out slowly because he was the sweet guy on the air, like you. And he, in private, he was a creep, again, like you. So we had this extraordinary parallel with your life. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm glad you're smiling. A few, questions, I, few questions left before we terminate this I, interview. No, no, I want to tell you just the last thing is, that play, a copy of it was filmed, without my knowing it, because it's just a live transmission, it was filmed. That film was part of a number of films sent out to Angola to teach people how to make television productions. It was then returned to the BBC for destruction. The guy who was carrying it down at the furnace thought, I'd like to keep that. He kept it. We dissolved to... God knows how many years later. And he, he's riding on a bus next to Jim Smith, who's the floor manager for Beat the Clock. And he says, what do you do? And Jim says, I'm in television. He said, I used to work in television. I used to work down uh, doing uh, throwing all the rubbish into the furnace. <laughs> do you know Bob Monkhouse? He said, yes, he happens to be a friend of mine. Well, what do you know? I've got a film, a play he did in 1965 in my loft. Said, do you think he'd like it? Jim said, I think he might. And to blow me if the chap didn't come around one Sunday with it in the boot of his car and give it to me. And I, I gave uh, a couple of hundred pounds to charity, the, the, a charity he named, and uh, gave it to the BBC, said, do you want this? And they said, no. And so I said, all right, thank you very much. And I've had it put onto video so I can watch it any time. I've got to see that. I'll show it. The next time you yeah, yeah, must together. see that. Yeah. That's, uh, and were you, were you pleased when you saw it? Oh, well, to tell you the truth, I was sneakily a bit pleased, but I think I caught myself acting a few times. You know, in fact, I think I've said in the book I was such a ham, the makeup girl had to glaze me. <laughs> your love for art, when, that, when did that develop? I know as a cartoonist you're, you're a fine cartoonist uh, and a very adventurous cartoonist, but you, how did your love for art, because I know you love some of the masters? My maternal grandpa carved wood, taught wood carving in a school in South London, and my mum had some talent as a watercolourist and a sculptress and studied under Sir William Russell Flint. And I met the great man once and I've got some originals of his that I wouldn't part with. And she taught me basically how to draw, but I could never do it three-dimensionally. I could never do sculpting or modelling. It was always the outline that fascinated me. So I found cartooning very easy and I was doing it as a small boy to make other people laugh and to win their approval, I suppose. But also because it was infinitely... Enjoyable for me. All children can draw. All children love to draw. I've never grown out of it. As you know, I, I doodle on everything. I think I've drawn on you from time to time. I haven't found any other surface. And uh, then it was natural that I would start to sell those. I sold my first cartoon when I was 12 years of age to Mickey Mouse Weekly. And then I drew for the Beano and the Dandy and various other comics, Radio Fun, The Knockout. Anything, anybody would buy the work and would commission it. Then I, I became an editor because the war years, the uh, paper was very hard to get. It was needed for the war effort. And here I was, an adolescent. I had to go on the phone to artists and say, oh, my name is Boris Ashton, and pretend to be an older man to get them to, to work for me. And I published comics before I was 20. And always expect to go on doing that. And when I was 17, I was an animator for Government British Animation, the people who anim who came over from Disney Studio to start up a animator stu animating studio in London, or rather in Berkshire. And uh, and I loved 
all that. I thought that was going to be my future. I never dreamed while I was in the RAF lecturing on commercial art in the RAF as I did and painting, doing murals on the, on the sergeant's mess wall that I would wind up in a lifetime of comedy instead. But your whole art collection, uh, which goes from one extreme to another, <laughs> what is it... When you own a painting, is it is it like is it is it? What am I trying to say? Is it, is it possession? I've, that's mine, and or? I don't think it's that, Pete. And that's one of the reasons why it's so eclectic. I have such a passion for an entity of for what it is, for what it for what it is in itself. It is so lovely of its own kind. Like loving jazz and swing and classical music, it's possible to love the strip cartoon of Crazy Cat by George Harriman from 1911, but equally adore A Watercolour by William Russell Flint from 1935, or be crazy about a David Hockney, if you can afford one, or whatever your period ha happens to be. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, for example, with a private collection which must be worth something over 200 million, is absolutely crazy about pre-Raphaelites. The thrill that I got at, at going down to Sidmonton and looking at the pre-Raphaelite paintings that he has on his walls by Rossetti and by Holman Hunt and by Sir John Millet and all those fantastic... I love that fear of myself. The thrill of seeing the actuality of the work, the, the, the surface on which the great men actually applied their brushes and decided this and decided that and varnished over that and, and had a... Oh, I never knew that would look like that because I've only seen a reproduction. The thrill of the, of the real original is... You've got a little piece of time, a little piece, a little piece of, of creation from another man's extraordinary talents. And there it is hanging on your wall, and you can look at it and say, ah, just in my keeping for as long as I live, I know I don't own it, but I'm, I am the curator, the keeper of that for the next generation, and I will look after it and make sure it doesn't get damaged because someone will come after me who will love it as much as I do. Bob, you've written the book. Is there anything you haven't said? Is there anything you feel you've left out that you are sad about? No. If, if, God forbid, the people about whom I could not write had passed on, I would say very little more about them because I wouldn't want to say anything unkind and I fear that possibly I might be tempted to do that to justify my own behaviour. After all, I was a philanderer during my first marriage and I don't want to talk about that first marriage because it would be unfair, um, I think to do more than shoulder the blame myself. It would be improper, put it that way. Uh, and I don't think anyone would like me for it. Uh, so that's another reason. I wouldn't respect myself much, which is the main reason now. I care less about what other people think of me than I used to, Pete. I care more about what I think of myself. And in the book, I've tried to face up to my faults, um, even while I've been very grateful for my blessings. It's been a very strange exploration, which I didn't expect it to be. And in the more serious passages of, of those pages, I found, I found out things about myself as I wrote it that I didn't know. And then I went back and wrote it more carefully to make sure that I'd expressed it exactly as I felt it, to choose the right words, exactly the right words. And so I think maybe I'm glad I wrote it. Bob Monkhouse, Crying With Laughter, it's a bestseller, it's an autobiography. Can I thank you? Thanks, Pete. Lovely to talk to you, and thank you for asking me such great questions.